relationships. And I'm not here to talk to you about dating. There's a different session on that. I'm here to talk to you about what God's standards of sexual purity are uh, so that you would know what a Christian sexual ethic is. It's something that is completely uh, alien to our culture. Our society thinks about sex in a completely different way than Christians do. Uh, We believe, though, that God invented sex and sexuality for human good and human holiness, for our protection and preservation, and for our progeny to make more of us, for example. And all of that is, is something that I think you're in the middle of. You're in the middle of this war for your soul. And the culture is saying one thing about sex and sexuality, uh, whether it's the homosexual agenda and you know those movements. We just got out of Pride Month a little while back. And I mean, even Burger King is, is on board. You, you can't go anywhere without seeing the, the rainbow flags. And you've been told in school that this is part of diversity. And if you're against uh, any kind of, if you have any kind of sexual rules, then it's the same thing as being a racist. And it's in that world that I'm speaking to. I know that that's what you're surrounded by, inundated with a message that's pithy and interesting called love is love. So why would you be against any of it? Aren't you Christians, the ones that say that God is love? And so why would you be about forbidding anything? Why do you want to get all involved in other people's lives and relationships? And it's that kind of agenda and that kind of worldview that you're up against right now. And it's not going to be easier in the future. It's going to be more and more difficult. And so I want to inform your worldview today and help you understand what the Bible does say about sexual ethics kind of in in large part. But more importantly, I want to pastor you this morning. I want to help your heart. I want to help you individually. So not just talking to you about how the godless world is, is going wild when it comes to sexual ethics, but I want to talk to you about the choices that you're making right now and the choices you will be making in the next five years and following that will define who you are as a believer. The world wants your identity to be wrapped around your sexual preferences so that you identify as gay or trans or lesbian or straight or bisexual or a number of coming letters to LGBTQ+. So I want you, I want to to talk to you individually, not just about the world system and schemes and and all the lies in society. I want to talk to you about who you are if you love Jesus, because that is going to be fundamental to your identity. Because no matter what sinful choices you've made sexually so far in your life, no matter what you've explored, uh, no matter what you've looked at on the internet, no matter what has happened to you or what you've done to someone else, it is the desire of God in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to completely change the way you think about who you are 
so that you wouldn't think of yourself first off as a straight person or a gay person or a trans person or, or any other desire, be it sinful or be it uh, natural, that those desires would not be what define you. But because Jesus came to rescue you from sin and death and to transform you from the inside out, you would see yourself not as a letter, but you'd see yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. And your identity would be wrapped up and caught in him. And it's only then that you can understand why a biblical sexual ethic would be how you'd want to live. It's only then when you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, when you've placed faith in the Son of God who died for you and rose from the grave to pay for your sins and provide for you eternal life. It's only when your life is centered and wrapped around the Son of God, not your sexuality, not your desires, whether they are are deformed or whether they are natural in your mind. I want you to see yourself as in union with the Son of God your life hidden deeply in Christ. That's what this morning's talk is about. So let me begin by praying for God's help. And then I wanna look at two passages of scripture. Father, thank you for these students and their presence here is a reminder of how important this topic is. And I pray for those especially who are tangled up in lust and pornography, who are, aware of the depth of their sin. God, I pray that you would free them today through the power of your Holy Spirit and through the truth and proclamation of the gospel. I pray that each student here would find who they really are, not thinking about their urges or desires in a fleshly sense, but they would think about who they are because you've given them a spiritual desire to follow Jesus Christ, to honor him, to love him and to serve him all their days. God, would you replace affections for sin, love for sin, desire for sin with a greater and stronger desire to honor you, to be holy, to get to heaven, to use our physical bodies in a way that would fulfill their purpose and honor the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you first open to 2 Timothy 2.22. It's where the title of this session comes from, and I want to give you a kind of a two-minute sermon in 2 Timothy 2.2.2. 2 Timothy 2.2.2. What does it say? It says, flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. What a verse. It'd be worth circling in your Bible. I want to explain these three words at the heading of this verse, flee youthful lusts in reverse order. So if you're taking notes, you could write down lusts, youthful, flee. (laughs) 
because we'll look at them backwards, okay? And I just want to do this real quickly so that you understand that this, I think, can be a anthem for you. This can be something that you hang on to. I don't prefer you to tattoo it. I do prefer you to write it and to remember it and to grab onto these three words, to flee youthful lusts. So let's start with the word lusts. Lusts is used in the Bible to mostly talk about sexual desire. And you could even add to that improper sexual desire. Uh, sexual desire that is, is forbidden by God. And before you ask the most popular question that a teenager could ask, which is how far is too far, the idea isn't, you know, how much can you dishonor God? The idea is behind the concept of lust is that you're grasping at something that God has forbidden, that you're reaching towards something that God says is not good for you and is not right for you. And so that's the idea of lust. Lust just simply means a strong and normally in almost every case in the New Testament, evil desire. The reason I say almost every case is sometimes it's the same as our word passion, which is a word that we in this generation and uh, in this this time in our world history, uh, we use the word passion unlike the Bible uses it. The word passion and lust are the same thing but we have no hesitation about talking, like asking someone like, what's your passion? And you'd say like, I love horse riding or something. Uh, what's, what's your passion? Well, I'm an, I'm an expert MMA fighter, for example. So you talk about your passions. I'm into fountain pens. I, I like to you know, watch birds, whatever. It's a weird way to use a word that has a lot of history to it, pa- passion, for most of uh, the Western world's history is a negative word. It's the word lust. Passion and lust are one thing. And so we don't usually ask questions like, what are you committed to? Uh, what are you, what are you um, going to do with your life? What is your great purpose? Instead, we ask, what's your passion? Which is a way of saying like, what do you want right now? What, what are you hungry for? What do you desire? What do you lust after? And I do think we need, to, we need to change the way we think about passions. Passions are not fundamental. Truth is fundamental. And so, again, not defining ourselves by the worst thing we ever wanted or by the best thing we ever wanted, but by what we know is true. It's starting to understand that word lusts. Lusts are things that God has forbidden. It's not the question, how far is too far? It's understanding that that word lust has to do with an evil desire, a strong and evil desire. And that desire, when it's not in the right context and space, is dishonoring to God. In other words, sex is not forbidden by any means. God made sex and sexuality for human happiness and human holiness. But he made it in the context of marriage. That's what Genesis 1, 2, 3 teaches us. That before the fall of man, uh, mankind was made with a sexuality. Man and women are made to be sexually compatible. And Adam and Eve were intended to desire one another to enjoy one another and to receive the fruit of their love, which is a fat baby. It's, it's wonderful. It's not a bad thing. 
It's a good thing. In the Garden of Eden, in the context of purity, in the environment of holiness, and under the covenant of marriage. And marriage is, is a covenant. It's an agreement made between a man, a woman, and God that is a one flesh commitment where you stay with that person for the entirety of your lives. That's how God intended sex to be to the benefit of mankind, to make more humans and for a man and a woman to be deeply committed to one another in love in a one flesh way, in a way that would make them inseparable. And so the foundational understanding of lust would be a desire for anything that goes against God's blueprint and plan. You see, if you're an architect and you build a Holcomb auditorium or or some really questionable stairs, you understand that there are rules for this to be solid. In fact, something you may not know, they put some uh, things under this yesterday uh, to take it to the next level, some some uh, generator things. I don't know what they're called. I went to seminary, not to whatever school you learn this at. And uh, they were like airbag things that were gonna shake the stairs so that you'd climb them and, and then they would, you know, so that way people would actually die in this event. So <laughs> wisdom prevailed and they went according to this plan. And it was a better plan. Now, when God makes a plan, when he makes a blueprint, it's a perfect blueprint. And we live in a fallen world. And so you've all seen imperfect marriages. None of you have parents who are perfect. None of you live in a, a church community that is you know, absent of divorce or abuse or difficulty or, or things that plague God's blueprint in a fallen world. But the original blueprint is perfect. It's what God intended. And even in our fallenness, in our sinfulness, It is God's best way to preserve you and to help you and to satisfy you and to point you to Jesus. That's why you should say no to lusts, to crooked, evil desires. That's the first word is lust. The second word is youthful. Youthful. To understand the word youthful, you just have to look in the mirror because you don't shave that much, most of you, except beard guy back there. And... Some of those, sometimes there's just an eighth grader with a mustache. It's always been that way. So youthful means that, you know, the Bible doesn't speak bad about youth. It it commends youth uh, for their strength and energy. And you have lots of that. You have lots of strength. You have lots of energy. And over the years, it will decline. But the Bible also commends elderliness, not for strength and strength and, and. Uh, energy, but elderly people are commended usually for being wise. And this isn't always the case. Sometimes a young person can be super wise, make great choices, guard their heart, uh, follow God faithfully. Lots of examples in the Bible of that. Jesus's mom, Mary, would be a good example of that. Uh, Daniel, in the book of Daniel, would be an exceptional example of a young person honoring God with their life and having wisdom. And there's also examples in the Bible of old people who do stupid stuff. So not just so making you young doesn't make you stupid automatically, and making me old doesn't make me wise automatically. But there's normally a curve there. 
that as you grow older, especially if you love Jesus and follow God's ways, that you will move towards maturity. And so Paul in telling Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2, 2, is so many twos in that, is helping him understand that Timothy, who was probably like 37, 38 years old, they considered that young back then, so you'll be young for a while. Uh, I'll be young for a while, because I'm 29. So, Paul, you shouldn't lie well you're, you're teaching the Bible to people, just advice. Um, so Paul's telling Timothy to pursue maturity, and that lust by definition, a sinful, evil, usually a sexual desire, but not always and, and not necessarily in this passage. Any kind of evil desire usually is associated with being young and dumb, with being immature. And this is, this is hard for you to talk about because your parents have frustrated you so many times in the last few years as they've told you what to do and, and you think, I just know better than them. Why are they always on my case? And why are they bossing me all the time? I'm not that bad of a kid. I'm doing, I'm doing all right. They act like they're raising young Hitler over here. What's happening? And I think when you feel that like desire to, to be free and to be mature, that isn't necessarily a bad desire. It's just misplaced because you don't know what you don't know. And and there's areas of your life that are immature and youthful, especially when it comes to lusts. You don't understand what you're getting into. It's one of the reasons Solomon warns a young man not to awaken love before it's time. It's just, it's not time yet for you to pursue marriage. It wouldn't be appropriate. You can't afford a trailer house. <laughs> you, you wouldn't be a good husband right now. You wouldn't be a good wife right now because you're 14, bro. So there's things you'll need to figure out. So youthful lusts are reminding us that so much of, of what we're talking about, when we're talking about fighting sexual sin, whether it's lust on your own or, or whether it's lust in the context of what you're doing with someone else, so much of sexual sin, you need to see it as immature. You're in high school, and there's few things more annoying to you than your little brother, right? And for the most part, you have like a sixth grade or a fifth grade brother, and you would agree with me that he bugs. He bugs. And what you're not thinking about is that was you like just a couple years ago. You bugged so bad. It's just, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. And, <laughs> and so, you know, that, you see that and you think he's so annoying, go away. And he messes with your stuff and he bugs your friends and he's an annoying little brother. And what you don't understand is that that's just simply immaturity but I don't know if you think about your lusts that way. I wonder if you think your lusts, your, your desires for sex that you should not have yet without the covenant of marriage, I wonder if you think of those as grown up. Like you're becoming an adult and now you're having these desires and, 
And, you know, these relationships, they're, they're, they're complex. And, and I, think, I think I'm being very grown up now. But I, I wish you would see what Paul is telling Timothy is, is when you're being foolish, you're being young and dumb. You're being immature. An example I like to use is the construction blocks called Legos. Conoces Legos? Yeah. Some of you probably still play with Legos, and it's getting real close to the time to stop. But most of you put the Legos down, right? Maybe you still got like, you know, you you had an eight, some guys still got it. You know what? Better play with Legos and do other bad stuff. So get your Legos on. You'll be an engineer. You'll make a lot of money. Good for you. So... But I mean, a time comes, let's say it like this then, because I, I feel like there's a lot of Lego players in the room. The duplex Legos. You know the duplex? They're the ones that hold, they're about this big, each Lego, and they only have like two, como se llama, nubs? Yeah, or whatever. They're just big old, they're baby Legos. They're the ones in the nursery at church. And so I get it. You like to build the Tower of London or the Sphinx in Egypt or, you know, uh, What's his name's ship? This is the way. Yeah. There's a nerd test. I was just doing a nerd test. You all passed. So <laughs> you like to build the thing, but if I gave you duplex Legos, you'd be bummed out because you're like, those are babyish. I can't build the good stuff with that. Or if you've finally gotten out of the Lego world, you're thinking like, I don't play with Legos anymore. I'm not a kid. But for some reason, I wonder, not very many of you think of pornography that way. I hope you think of pornography as disgusting and exploitive and a crime against women made in the image and likeness of God, a crime against daughters with fathers, an offense to God and the reason, one of the reasons he nailed his son to a cross to endure his wrath. I hope you find pornography disgusting. You should also think of it as very, very immature like playing with baby Legos. It's so far away from what actual sex is. And it's, it's light years away from a covenant of marriage that honors God in, in sexual enjoyment and satisfaction. It's so awful and exploitive and evil. And I hope you think of it as far more annoying than any little sibling far more obnoxious, far more childish, far more useless and foolish. That's how you need to think of it. And that's why the apostle says, flee youthful lusts. There are no mature lusts. There's lust that has dug roots deep down into your life, blinding you and changing you and trying to transform you into something evil and crooked and broken, but there are no mature lusts. Lust is infantile. Lust is stupid. Lust is obnoxious. Lust is childish. Don't think of your newfound sexuality as something, as you explore it in a way that is not honoring to God, Don't think of that as something that's grown up. A final word. This was longer than a five-minute sermon. We're doing it backwards. Flee youthful lusts. We did lusts. We did youthful. Let's talk about flee. Look at this passage that we have open in 2 Timothy 2, 
22, flee the evil desires of youth. Flee. It means to run away from. The illustration that would come to your mind from Sunday school would be Joseph. Remember young Joseph worked for a dude named Potiphar and was around Potiphar's nasty wife. Her name was Potiphar's wife. And he was in the house and she said, "Uh, Joseph, sleep with me. And she grabbed him by the coat and he said, uh, flee youthful lust. And he let her have the coat and he took off. Ain't got no clothes on, just ran down the street. Went to prison for it because she lied about him and said that, she, that he attacked her and whatnot. But he was so committed to his purity and to honoring God that though he probably wouldn't have been caught, it didn't matter to him because he knew he needed to flee youthful lusts. And in that case, he literally fled, like ran away, scram, run, jet, buy. That's what this word means. The same word is used in the New Testament when the Holy Family, uh, Jesus and his parents, uh, fled to Egypt because Herod was going to kill all the babies. That's the kind of word. That's the kind of seriousness. And I want you to start thinking about that kind of language, that kind of extreme wartime seriousness when it comes to doing battle against your lusts. And so if you're already entangled in pornography, If your parents are stupid enough to let you have Safari on your phone, young man, you should delete it for them. You should have them lock it for you. I'm sorry your parents are dumb. They just don't know better. You need it off of your phone. You need to do things that are extreme to get it out of your life. And you'll do that if you have the concept of flee, run away. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it uses a strong language of abstain, like get away from, don't touch anything related to sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. It means to hate it, to run from it, to flee it. And so when that temptation comes, you're willing to take your phone and chuck it. It was a water bottle and not my phone. So the concept of fleeing is running away from the problem. Look, I've talked to a lot of young men. I've been a youth pastor since 1939. So we talked about pornography. We talked about the struggle with lots of young dudes for a lot of years. And they've got to take it. I tell them you got to take it seriously. There's an article by John Piper I recommend. Have someone else Google it for you because you just got Safari off your phone. Um, called Anthem, A-N-T-H-E-M. You could put Anthem, John Piper. It's a short article and he has... Uh, the word anthem broken into, como se dice, a thing where the, each letter stands for something, A-N-T-H, acronym. You guys are good at this. So A is, is avoid, N is say no, T is turn your mind away, H is hold your thoughts on Christ, E is enjoy the pleasures of God instead of sinful pleasures, and M is move. Muevate. It's just go. It's flee youthful lusts. Don't lock yourself in the bedroom. Don't be on the computer for endless hours at night, dum-dum. Go for a run. You could use it. I was talking to myself on that last part. Like I think you guys will really like my shirt. It's a UNM, University of New Mexico, cross-country shirt. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wasn't a runner. 
wasn't a runner. I got it just for inspiration. So what was I talking about? Oh, flee, because cross country. Uh, we're running. We're running from lust. We're running from those opportunities where there's no accountability. We're taking our bedroom door off if we have to. I mean, be extreme. We're talking about your soul here. What does it profit a man, Jesus said, if you gain the whole world? Wouldn't that be nice to have the whole world, all the money, all the cars, all the houses, all the stuff, all the whatever you want? What would it profit a man if you gain the whole world? Well, the answer is a lot. But then Jesus says, but loses his own soul. How would it be good for you to have everything but to have nothing because of your addiction to your sin and lusts that sent you to hell forever? This is a battle for your soul and you've got to fight and you've got to flee. And you can never run away from something without running somewhere else, okay? Last night, I took one of my daughters down here to get a Regen sweatshirt and... Uh, we, we pulled our little golf cart up there and we'd go inside and, and some games crew person was like, come inside, there's been a bear sighting. Anybody part of this thing? Yeah, you saw some of that. I talked to the girls that supposedly saw a bear. Um, no, I'm kidding, I, I believe you, you saw a bear. Koala bear. So, <laughs> a raccoon bear. So anyway, bears are a thing in New Mexico. We don't fear them, you don't mess with them, but don't, don't be afraid. Uh, they just want your trash. So it would be something to run from a bear. Bears are faster than you. Bears are hungrier than you. Bears are more toothsome than you. And bears are bears. So to run from a bear is helpful for a moment. To run into Holcomb Auditorium and Close the door is a smarter move because then bear outside, person who might be tasty to bear inside. See how you went somewhere. The Bible always talks like that when it talks about saying no to sin. It uses illustrations like you put off unrighteousness and you put on righteousness, like like clothing. Like I take that off and I put this on. Look in this passage that we're we're in, 2 Timothy 2.22. It says, flee the evil desires of youth or flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You see, fleeing is never enough. And now there's another word here. In Greek, it's the word pursue. And you know where it's used? 30 times in the New Testament. And almost every time, It's used about people chasing Christians to kill them, especially Saul. Pursue. Like when the cops pursue a criminal or when persecutors pursue someone they're trying to martyr. That's how it's used. In this case, what are you running from? Youthful lusts. What are you running to? Well, how are you running? You're running as if someone is trying to kill you. Because it is. First Thessalonians 4.13 again. Abstain from sexual immorality. The Bible continually says, which wages war against your soul. If someone was chasing you with a gun, you would run with great motivation. 
If someone was threatening to kill you, you would get away. You would scream. You would call for help and you would not freeze up. You would go. Evil desires, sinful sexual immorality is worse than a murderer because it isn't going to just kill your body. It's going to kill your soul. And so you don't just run away. You run to something else. So what do you run to? It says, this is what you chase, pursue, run towards. For signal Christian virtues, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. What are they? Righteousness is to honor God by doing what God would have you do. It's not dishonoring God. It's doing what honors God. That's righteousness. It's positive action for the sake of God, for the glory of God. Righteousness and holiness are related. The first thing you chase after is doing what is right. And sometimes your battle against lust is as simple as choosing to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. Of having your head be the boss rather than your feels. And saying, though my desires are this, my desires are wrong because God is right and so I'm going to say no and I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to get out of the car with you. I'm going to have you drop me off. I'm going to call my dad. I'm going to get away from this party. I'm going to get away from this group of friends. I'm going to, I'm going to go righteousness instead of sin. Pursue righteousness. Second, Pursue faith. How do you pursue faith? You pursue faith by trusting. That's what faith is. Faith is always a response to something God has shown. Hebrews 11. So in other words, you know something about God. You know something God wants of you. You know something about who he is. You know the gospel, the good news about who Jesus, uh, who God is in Jesus and how he has come to save you from your sins. You respond to that knowledge and that response is called faith. So faith isn't just like, um, I'm gonna have faith. Faith knows something. And it acts on that something. It responds to that something. And so when the Bible says that, uh, when the Bible says to you that all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Faith says, I respond to what God has shown me about how good the Bible is by reading it by believing it, by putting it into work in my life. That's faith. It's not just like some corny Christian word for you to paint on a sunset and slap on the fridge or the background of your iPhone. Faith. Faith is action. Faith is responsive. Faith trusts God. Apart from faith, you can't be saved. Apart from faith, you can't be sanctified. Faith is believing and trusting and taking God at his word and acting on it. Righteousness, faith, third word, love. And our world loves love. But usually when they're talking about love, they're talking about lust. 
They're just talking about some sinful desire. They're just talking about doing what they want to do. In the Bible, love is centered on the good of others, always. And that's why, young ladies, if a boy is trying to be inappropriate with you, who is not your husband, but he's trying to make you go further than you're comfortable going, he's trying to touch you in an inappropriate way, he's trying to, you know, he's trying. For you to be so confused as to think what he's doing has anything to do with love is a really evil lie. You don't understand love. That young man is not in any way loving you. In fact, he hates you. He wants to use you and he wants to exploit you. He should have told you that, but instead he started grabbing at you. You need to get away from him because he doesn't know what love is. As see, love is most concerned with the good of the one it loves. And so when you love someone, you want what is best for them. You want to push them towards what is good and righteous and holy. And so true biblical love, which you would experience in a marriage that honors God, is committed to the best for that other person, not in fulfilling its own wants, needs, and desires. It's fundamentally considering others as more important than yourself. It's recognizing that God, the God who is so consumed with his own glory that he created a whole world, does acts of self-crucifixion in order to demonstrate his love because of his commitment to those he will redeem. I mean, that's what love looks like. Love looks like Jesus dying on the cross for you. It doesn't look like that kid who keeps saying, I love you, baby, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, girl. He doesn't love you. He hates you. And he's trying to ruin your life and exploit you. That final word on that list is peace. 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 Peace is what we have with God because of Jesus' death on the cross. To pursue peace is to pursue peace first and foremost with God. God reconciled himself to us at the cross of Jesus Christ. He took what was hostile to him, sinners like us, and made us have peace with him. He brought us together by the blood of Jesus. That's the first expression of pursuing peace is to pursue a right relationship with God. And then from there, peace with others will flow. High schoolers have so much drama in relationships. Am I wrong? I'm not wrong. The text is too much. You know your parents read your text, right? So they're just, the texts are too much. It's too much drama. It's too much ridiculousness. I mean, it's telenovia level. It's so like, I don't know if he really likes me. I mean, you can break up with me. I don't know if he like me. Does he like me? Will you find out if he likes me? Do he like me? Does he like me? What do you say? Send me the screenshot. Did he like me? <laughs> he slid into my DMs. Does he like me? He didn't like me. 
I think I like him, but I don't know if I like him. <sighs> it's so much difficulty and conflict and, and lack of, of stability and, and security. And it's the opposite of peace. I know you think of the word peace as like, well, there's no war here. And though the, sometimes the texts are a little bit spicy and warlike, I think that you need to see peace as this state of wholeness, of restoration, of joy. The Hebrew people understood peace. They, they have a word for it and they say it to you all the time, shalom. And it means everything is right. And when you're not trying to pursue relationships for all the wrong reasons, when you're content with spiritual friendships that honor God between girls and guys and in your youth groups, when you, when you are pursuing that, you will drop the drama and you'll go after peace. That's what this verse is talking about. And the funny thing is this verse isn't even talking about sex only. It's talking about any youthful, dumb, sinful thing you could be going after. But there are lots of passages in the Bible that talk about sexual immorality. And I need to show you one of them. 1 Corinthians 6. So that was my long sermon. This will be my short sermon, okay? Pretty good. What time is it? Where, where am I? What day is today? What time is it supposed to end? Does anybody know anything about this? No. I got it right here. I get the text from the Petros. What's this say? Here it is, 10.45. We got eight minutes. Let's go. I, I'm going to do, like, do like three minutes and then I'll do some Q at the end if you want to do some Q, okay? So let's, let's do this. 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, and then on your own, I want you to read 1 Corinthians 10 later, okay? 1 Corinthians 10 is about sexual immorality that happened in the past in Israel and how God dealt with it but I want you to see just this one truth from 1 Corinthians 6 to help you understand why you need to flee youthful lusts. 1 Corinthians 6. Starting in verse nine. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, and that's a word that means anything in the realm of sex that is not a godly marriage. So that's any kind of physical, sexual thing that dishonors God, okay? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And in case you're a virgin and you feel like, you know, you're not on this list, have you ever gossiped about someone in your class? Because slanderer is on this list too. It's a list, it's a, called a New Testament vice list. It's just a, a long list of sins. It's like that drawer in your kitchen that your family keeps all the weird stuff in. There's like a remote in there and a thermometer in there and a crayon in there and a raccoon tail in there. I mean, there's just, it's a junk drawer. All over the New Testament, there's these lists that hit like this. 
don't be deceived, neither sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, and every one of those words. When you think about Jesus's standard and definition of what adultery is, it's lust in the heart. Every one of these lists and every one of these words should make your mind hear one word. Guilty. 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 And the guilty, it says, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And in case you missed it, it said it twice. First in verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then again at the end of verse 10, will not inherit the kingdom of God. None of them will. You will not go to heaven if you live in pursuit of your lust. You will not go to heaven if you continue to follow after and worship pornography. You will not go to heaven if you continue to chase after sexual immorality outside of the boundaries of marriage. You will not go to heaven if you pursue broken desires, be they homosexual desires or heterosexual desires. You will not go to heaven. That's what the Bible says but it gives us a compelling reason for hope in verse 11 of chapter six. And that is what some of you were. That's what you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. That my friends is the gospel. That is the good news about Jesus. You see, you were all those things by nature and by choice because we were sinners under the right righteous wrath of God. And when we came to faith in Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus to save you from your sins, you are not those things anymore. Instead, you are clean. You are washed. You are made right and righteous before God, justified and being made more holy, sanctified all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that something? Someone just said, the Lord Jesus Christ over your life. It is that your life bears his name. I belong to Jesus, soul and mind and body. My heart is his forever. That's what the Christian says. So Christian, I'm assuming that I'm talking to some believers in here who love Jesus and are trying hard to follow him. How should you in light of your transformation from darkness to light, from dirty to clean, how should you think about sex outside of marriage? About lust? Verse 12. Everything's permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything's permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the law. You see, we're not under the Ten Commandments. That's not how God judges us. God judges us on the basis of one thing and one thing only. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Not, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you not do this? Did you not do this? That's legalism, and it'll damn you to hell. 
God only sees you on the basis of your relationship with Jesus or your lack thereof. And so Paul knows that it isn't about giving you a long list of rules that you cannot do or that you can do. He says, everything's permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. You see, a person who has been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God has God living in them and they want what's beneficial. They want to do what's right. They want to do what's honoring to God. And he reminds us of a principle. I will not be mastered by anything. This is so important for those of you who are enslaved to pornography. You have the wrong Lord and Savior. You are following after your lusts and desires. You're not following after Jesus. Your relationship with a website is far more captivating than your relationship with God. And then he gives you an illustration, verse 13. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What does that mean? Well, quickly, it means this. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. It's, it's questionable to think about this as it relates to camp food, but for, for edible food, for edible food, it goes in to your stomach because your stomach is supposed to receive food and it works. It gives you energy. It makes you, you know, super strong and you're able to fall down the stairs and not break a bone because you, you ate rice and meat. And food is for that and stomachs are for that. What do we call that? It's natural, right? Just natural. Like sandwiches, natural. Oatmeal, natural. Steaks, natural. Mama's cooking, normally natural. (laughs) Food is for your stomach and your stomach is for food. But what's he say after that? The middle of verse 13. God will destroy them both In other words, foods and stomachs don't last for all eternity. But here's what the picture means. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. First, your body will not be destroyed. Your body will be resurrected someday. He's talking to Christians. And he's letting them know that, look, lunch is natural. Sexual immorality is not natural. And that's the biggest lie that you're being told by the culture today. The worldview is, if it feels good, do it. That's true when it comes to cake. If the cake tastes good, have a piece. Don't have 20. May I be a parable to you. Have a piece of cake. It's natural. It goes down, tastes good, cake. Sexual immorality is a lie. It tells you that it's promising you something good, something satisfying, something titillating, something desirable, something that will make you feel so good. But he's saying that your body wasn't made for that. Your body wasn't made for sexual immorality. Your body wasn't made for lust. Your body wasn't made for pornography. Your body wasn't made for illicit relationships. Your body wasn't made for homosexual desires. Your body was made for the Lord. He didn't say marriage. 
Because before you can even understand marriage, you have to understand that you belong to Jesus' soul and mind and body. All of you is devoted to him. So no matter how many mistakes you've made in the past, no matter how much bad stuff you've gotten into, it's time to give your life to Jesus and recognize that that means all of you belongs to God. Not just Sundays, not just in the daytime, but at night, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, you belong to Jesus' soul, mind, and body. The body is for the Lord. And he goes on to say, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he unites himself with a prostitute is one who is with her in body? For it said, the two will become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Because this thing that your soul embodies, isn't yours anymore. It belongs to Jesus. And so live in a way related to your sexuality that recognizes first and foremost, you belong to Jesus, not to that young man, not to that young woman, that you belong to Jesus and he is yours. So flee youthful lusts and run to Jesus. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together. Pray that you would use it in the lives of these students. In Jesus' name, amen.